0: The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan that you're about to listen to discusses the following works. Arrival, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Iliad, The Odyssey, the other one, Russian Doll, The Handmaid's Tale, Ex Machina, Her, Westworld, and The Six Million Dollar Man. You've been warned.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore, I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts.
0: I'm Dr. Richard Green.
1: And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green.
0: Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So this episode is the second of two in a row from the conference that we attended a couple weeks ago, the Science Fiction Popular Cultures Conference in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so we're interviewing um, um, some folks. We have an interview with Jerome Abrams and Elizabeth Cook coming up a little bit later. But I thought um, we should maybe say a little bit about what we were doing there since we both presented. We were on that Marvel panel and we talked about that briefly previously, but um, what, what was your session on?
1: Well, my session, I was in the same session with Elizabeth, mm-hmm. um, so we'll hear a little bit about what she presented. Um, there were four panelists in my session, and one of them talked about um, sort of uh, various storytelling tropes in the movie Ex Machina and how that... Uh, those the the main character of Ex Machina is sort of a like a feminist um, vehicle for turning those tropes on their heads, mm-hmm. which, which was fun, um,
0: and and one uh, of our favorite movies. So that's oh
1: yeah, I just yeah, I think that's a fabulous movie. Um, it it seems to me that Ex Machina and her came out uh, pretty close to one another in time. I might be totally wrong about that, but and two of my favorite pretty movies close, for man. a long time. Um, so yeah. Uh, and I spoke on um, this issue that I've become increasingly interested in, and I think it's going to be part of my research agenda for a long time, um, which has to do with the, na- the nature of bodies and our moral relation to, bo- to our bodies as, as creatures. Um, so in particular, I have two kind of sister papers going on right now that both deal with this issue. Um, one that explores the moral relation between ourselves and our bodies and one that um, sort of tries to look at the nature individuation of what a body even is. Um, so I'll, I'll say a little bit about what got me going um, on this on this topic. Is well, it's, so uh, longtime listeners know that I've been working on. Um, in vitro ethical issues pertaining to in vitro meat.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So
1: right. this is a process of like taking a biopsy from an animal and do and culturing the cells and actually essentially growing meat in a lab so that you don't have to kill off uh, animals um, to eat meat if 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 you want to continue to be a meat eater. So this has this great advantage of like potentially eliminating factory farming, which is a horrible inhumane practice. But um, it, it got me thinking about broader issues um, because, of course, I'm tackling in the book that I'm writing on in vitro meat um, issues about the ethics of the procedure. But as I'm, as I'm exploring those issues, I'm also thinking, you know, because some people think that producing meat in this way is wrong because it's a, somehow a violation of the body. Mm-hmm. And of course, the initial taking of the cells is is you know a violation of the body in some way whether right. it's, even if it's um, a minute
0: yeah amount, right? yeah
1: and even if it it's, it's morally innocuous which it may turn out to be i mean we do biopsies to Does do our intentions matter right we do biopsies on animals to see if they have disease and then treat those diseases uh so yeah. is it anyway uh, and the animals don't know what our intentions
0: are treat them eat them it's all the same.
1: <laughs> no, it isn't.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs>
1: well, maybe, I thought that's where oh, you really were well, Maybe it is. Treat them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so long as you're not eat, killing them to eat them, right? right? I see where you're saying. Yeah. So so it got me thinking about um, bodies in general and how with the with the advancing technology that we have now, um, we might start to think about bodies in a different way entirely. So you probably saw the story that came out recently where. Um, there was a guy who had been paralyzed for years and um, he can now move his body body mm-hmm. using his mind using his mind mm-hmm. w- with the use of an exoskeleton
0: right um, so the body's contained inside the exoskeleton but the mind controls it and the, so, the
1: exoskeleton
0: yeah yeah so, so
1: I mean it's wild So
0: he's telling the machine that's now... Him, in you, right. some way. Yeah. I, yeah. Possibly. I mean, that's the raise thing. Raise a him. I
1: actually think my position—that this might be weird, but I don't think so—is that we should we should start to think of bodies as being. Um, it's weird because our bodies are tools, right? Hmm. Um, uh, but, and, and some, some of these tools, my hands, my feet, my eyes, I take to be part of my body in a way that like my knife or a car or, you know, a rake is not a part of my body, even though it's a tool that I use to do something. Um, and so I, I provide an account of the, um, the relation between p- beings and bodies, a moral account that has to do with the fact that, um, the in part that bodies give rise to motivation Mm -hmm. um and motivation gives rise to action and that bodies are both the things that give rise to the motivation and the things that can can actually carry you know carry out the action that you're motivated to do um and so and, and, and there are some other features of my account but uh but I want I want my account, as I mentioned in my talk, what I want my account to capture is uh, considerations like artificial intelligence would be embodied, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, what a kind of what kind of account of bodies can we provide that makes sense out of that? So it, it can't be oh bodies are stuff bodies are made out of certain kinds of physical matter uh, and only certain kinds of physical matter because that's question begging, right? You right. know. Um, I mean, just so sci-fi is instructive on this point that, uh, you know, when we watch, for example, you watch Westworld. um, Intuitively, the robots on Westworld have bodies, right? It makes sense to say that they're embodied. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, we don't want an account of bodies that makes that impossible.
0: Right, right, right. And, you know, there's lots of things that people would never even question, right? So somebody gets a titanium hip or something like that right it's not normal human body material mm-hmm. it's titanium mm-hmm. uh-huh. but that becomes their hip right well, so, yeah
1: right one so, would think, uh yeah the, wh- the moral questions become interesting because um is it problematic to harm someone's metal or whatever hip In the same way that it's problematic to do something with your cellular material. Um, There are ownership questions and autonomy questions. And I I just think, uh, oh, man, it's an interesting new world as we get more and more technology. I think it it changes. You know, we're asking the same old philosophical questions, but the range of answers... um, is changing, <laughs> I, and and actually, at the, some some of uh, technology is giving rise to entirely new questions. So I can't remember um, where I was when somebody was saying some people consider philosophy to be dead. Mm-hmm. Were we together when someone was saying that? I, I yeah yeah. Um, where were we? In any event, that just strikes me as absurd because one, philosophy is never over, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, uh, or dead, and two, I mean. It, the technology that we're encountering now just raises so many interesting philosophical questions that could keep us occupied for the next thousands of years yeah it, it <laughs> I mean, really
0: is sort of new new life into yeah. something that, that wasn't dead anyway yeah I mean, philosophy has right. been thriving right for centuries um right but yeah now suddenly it's not just free will and whether universals are more real than particulars mm-hmm. and, you know and what is knowledge right suddenly there's there's things that bear on people's lives um so i do remember where we were it was at hawaii con and we were sitting around um the table um talking to some of the folks that we eventually interviewed but it wasn't oh okay at the it wasn't it wasn't during the interview oh okay okay um yeah yeah so when you were growing up did you watch the 6 million dollar man
1: uh n- no
0: they anticipated all this stuff and didn't get any credit for it whatsoever because, you know, the six million dollar man would, had his parts replaced with bionic parts. Right. So, you know, I can jump over buildings and things like that. Right. That's um, cool.
1: I mean, yeah, sci-fi has always been doing that. That was what was interesting about this conference is, you know, pointing pointing out that sci-fi raises questions uh, that often become that are either just relevant to other things or sometimes uh, actually become realities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, for example, the in vitro meat thing Margaret Atwood was writing about that before it ever happened Right, right uh, So so what, what? tell us about your talk at the, the conference
0: Yeah, so I was talking about uh, my spoiler book some more which <laughs> is the, what I've been doing a lot of lately um, and I'm gonna, I'll mention what I discussed but I won't go into any detail um, just because on the episode you know, a few episodes back where we talked about it um, I hit on on all of these themes, so the the idea here was to look at what I'm calling the multiple engagement paradox. Right, this mm-hmm. is this idea that, you know, at least certain works, are sort of highly contingent on spoilers, and that you know that the spoiler isn't just a cool thing that happens; it, it plays a pivotal role. Um, and so you might wonder why you know. Um, If that's true, certain people like myself will go back and watch these same things over and over right? Mm -hmm. Um, and without any loss of enjoyment. And so one thing you might think is, well, you know, knowing what happens gives you a chance to watch it with that in mind and you figure it out. And as I argued um, at the conference, that's good for a few viewings. Um, But, you know, it doesn't explain why I might watch the same thing 30 times knowing how it turns out. Um, and so I wanted to, to give an account um, of, of why that was. But the more interesting part, I think, for um, the purposes of this conference, is they wanted me to tailor those remarks to science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I spent a little bit of time talking about why it is that, that people are more apt to engage um, science fiction that has sort of critical spoilers over and over, um, you know, more so than than other genres or at least as much as any other genre. And so the the payoff for me was something like, um, you know, science fiction, you know, at least when I like it um, and when I think it's at its best, is it's pretty philosophical, Mm -hmm. right? So we were just kind of joking about, you know, philosophy not being dead. And, um, you know, part and parcel with that is the fact that people have, found interesting things to say about free will for you know like 2300 years right <laughs> I mean it's it's the gift that keeps giving and science fiction you know when it's good philosophy is giving us stuff to ponder over and over and over so you can mm-hmm. go back to the same material um, it's not engaging science fiction isn't just a matter of seeing how the story unfolds it's thinking about all the conundrums and mm-hmm. paradoxes and Time travel related things yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So I so I thought that you know, science fiction sort of stands out um, among other genres as one that that there's good reason why people want to engage it time and time again. Yeah. Oh, great. Yep. Yeah. But enough about me. And enough me. about you. Mm-hmm. Um. Shall we Shall we turn to the interviews?
1: Sure. Okay. We're here with Gerald Abrams and Elizabeth Cook. Could you both tell us a little about yourselves, where you work, and what you do? Uh,
2: My name is Elizabeth, and uh, I teach philosophy at Creighton University, and I work on American pragmatism and philosophy of science.
3: Nice. Welcome. Thank you. My name is Gerald Abrams, and I also teach at Creighton University in the philosophy department, and um, I teach philosophy of film. I teach aesthetics, which is uh, theory of beauty study of works of art and questions what is a work of art. I also teach American philosophy and I do some bioethics and society.
0: Nice, Renaissance man. And so our listeners know we're here at um, the Science Fiction Popular Cultures Conference in Hawaii. Well, we should be back in the yeah. Intermountain <laughs> west. Um, you've been to this conference before, right, Gerald? So That's right. Is this yeah. your
3: second time? This is my second time. It is... Uh, it's the best conference I've ever been to. Yeah, it's a I, great conference. I, <laughs> we, it, it wasn't it's, much of a hard sell for us. Yeah, yeah. We've been to a lot of, a lot of conferences, uh, you know, in the states and outside of the states, but uh, I think this one takes the cake. It's really neat because, well, it's such an eclectic group. You have astronomers, you have philosophers, people in literature, people in, uh, in theater. A yep. Medical doctor here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's cosplayers. It's very kid friendly. Um, I'm leaving out certain scientists, I'm sure, in their fields, but uh, it's uh, very pluralistic, very open. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, what brings us together is that we all love science fiction and we all love Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Nice.
1: So um, I was on a panel with Elizabeth uh, was it yesterday, uh, before? before, yeah, it's
0: <laughs> <solo blur. laughs>
2: yeah. so um, could you tell us a little bit about your presentation to our um, listeners, it was sure. a great presentation. Oh, thank you. Um, so I've been interested in the philosophy of creativity and play for a while, um, but more recently, and maybe more narrowly, in, interested in pretend, what we do when we pretend, and how often we do it, and what context we do it. So I um, kind of use the movie Arrival to explore the philosophy of pretend. I see Louise Banks, the the protagonist in the story who's um, being put in a position to try to translate the language of the aliens as um, an attempt not not unsimilar to the position we're in all the time when we're trying to understand other minds, when we're trying to figure out what another person is understanding or feeling or thinking. So it's a, a kind of challenge in perspective-taking. And um, her whole approach in that movie is to try to assume that the aliens have conscious minds and see what she discovers by making that assumption. So she interacts with them, and she... Um, she communicates with them and succeeds whereas her counterpart Ian the physicist fails utterly in answering his questions that supposedly takes this third person perspective. Um, The physicists come up with nothing and she cracks the code in terms of understanding what their purpose is and understanding why they're here and I think that's a good lesson and I'd be thinking about the role of pretend not just in understanding other minds other cultures other humans but other understanding other theories too Um, I think the scientist oftentimes has to put himself in the theory that he's considering um, to figure out what would it mean if this were true and I think that 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 extends far beyond um, even science. I think that's what we do in science fiction. We explore possible worlds, worlds that may never come to be, may not have anything to do with reality, but they might have a lot to do with reality. And it's only by putting ourselves there from a first-person point of view that we can um, find out what could be the case.
0: So your your talk took me back to grad school. I was remembering a a seminar on quine and we were talking about problems of translation, right? So the protagonist in in the film that you were discussing is a linguist and she has to do this interpretive stuff and it's all about the methodology. Then I started thinking about how our softball team in grad school was named the Guys for a (laughs) while. That's perfect. (laughs) Um, All while managing to pay attention to what you were saying, so. Yeah, so it was good, it was a a nice talk. Yeah, okay, so
3: Gerald,
1: do you want to tell us about your presentation?
3: Um, Sure. Uh, Today I gave a presentation on uh, Longinus and Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. One of my
0: very favorites.
3: It's one of my favorites, too. I think maybe my favorite. It's either that or Vertigo. I'm not sure. Um, But uh, Longinus is, uh, is an ancient Greek philosopher. He writes this great book called On the Sublime, and uh, in On the Sublime, he defines this aesthetic category or form of judgment um, of the sublime as astonishment in surpassing even superhuman speech or writing. Uh, basically, you have your mind blown by um, a great writer like Homer and Iliad or Plato and the Republic, Um, and Longinus is kind of coming out of a a long tradition of aesthetics going back to Plato and Aristotle, who really sort of set the beautiful at the center of their aesthetics, and philosophers have been examining the beautiful for the whole of, of the history of philosophy, but I think what's interesting about Longinus is he... He's interested in the beautiful, but he's looking to examine a kind of maximum of the beautiful, a kind of overwhelming, awe-inspiring condition of wonderment that we experience when, when we experience a work like Plato's Republic or Homer's Iliad. Interestingly, I think Longinus claims that Homer's Iliad is sublime. You know, it's sublime because it's uh, it just it elevates our emotional condition to like, the condition of this wondrous astonishment, this uh, this elation. And Longinus says that Homer's Odyssey is not sublime, basically because Homer seems to have you know he's he's aged, and now really what he's doing is telling story after story and giving us image after image. And, uh, scene after scene, and he's sort of working by amplification in Longinus' sense. He's just adding uh, scene after scene and not giving us this incredible, overwhelming, you know, uh, intense feeling of elation. I kind of take that distinction between the Iliad and the Odyssey as a point of departure and then try to claim um, that Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Really redeems the potentiality for sublimity in uh, Homer's Odyssey, because what you get in uh, the uh, in 2001: A Space Odyssey is is something wonderfully sublime. It's a picture of universal history, which begins with ape creatures led by an ape named Moonwatcher, and uh, and they're dying. They are. They're living side by side with a candle of tapirs, and they're drinking from a drying watering hole, and, uh, and there's very little plant life left, and, uh, and they're fighting off a rival troop of of apes, and they can do that with a little more than, you know, stomps and howls and grunts, um, and it doesn't look good for the apes, but then the aliens, unseen throughout the film, set a tall black cuboid monolith in stone, uh, and this transforms the apes with a Promethean gift of instrumental reason uh, when the monolith is touched with sunlight. The apes essentially emerge from their cave, much as the ape-like creatures in Aeschylus's Prometheus bound emerge from their cave upon being transformed by and, uh, and suddenly they have intelligence. The, the scales have fallen from their eyes. They can see the, the bones on the ground as potentially clubs, instruments, uh, and they begin to hunt the tapers and kill the tapers. They become meat eaters. They can defend their watering hole. And then Moonwatcher, uh, the leader, hurls this femur bone. Uh, I think it's a femur from one of the tapers into the into the air and. Kubrick just wonderfully match cuts to the other end of universal history, with the implication that all of universal history is really this sort of ascent of instrumental reason, Um, and we arrive at this penultimate state uh, in history, um, you know, characterized by space travel. So the the instrument of the bone thrown in the air becomes a satellite, and all of a sudden uh, we're in a new world, but really... We're really in a world which uh, the aliens have set before us. So they set one monolith in stone to start the sequence off, but at the same time, three million years ago, they set another monolith in the moon, uh, underneath the surface. And basically, that's to guide us ultimately to uncover it. Once we uncover it, the sun touches it and it sounds a deafening signal to a third monolith uh, suspended in Jupiter space. And now uh, we have Dr. Dave Bowman, Dr. Frank Poole in the Discovery 1 along with Hal and and artificial intelligence. Uh, He's Hal 9000. He's really kind of a cyclops and uh, Dave is the new Odysseus on this odyssey uh, and they're pursuing this this monolith but Dave doesn't know about the monolith and Frank doesn't know about the monolith. Only Hal knows about the monolith. Um, Hal is guiding the ship toward the monolith and really Dave and Frank don't quite understand that this is the purpose they also don't understand that their ai cyclops friend hal is going insane because hal has been designed with a contradiction at the base of his brain on the one hand he is programmed not to deceive anyone about uh the mission Uh, and on the other hand he's programmed to deceive his his astronaut colleagues uh about the nature of the monolith, because there's a big worry that if Dave and Frank communicate the existence of extraterrestrials back to Earth, it will cause this kind of cultural or anthropological panic. So everything is kept secret. But Hal, this contradiction at the base of his mind, begins to unravel. And you start to see the unraveling fairly early in this part of the film, Um, not long after uh, Mr. Amor of... um, uh, the BBC News has given Hal uh, a Turing test, uh, and Hal passes the Turing test wonderfully, and then Frank and Dave, uh, you know, they they uh, are uh, are given a Turing test, or inverted Turing test, by this imitating machine, Hal, and they, they fail the test. Uh, Frank fails to see that he's not really checkmated, he's stalemated, and Hal is deceiving him, and Dave fails to, you know really understand that Hal's trying to say, look, don't you get it? Uh, You know, there's something wrong with this mission. So uh, Hal turns upon the crew ultimately. Dave has to conquer Hal. And here you have Odysseus conquering the Cyclops. Uh, And then Dave will uh, complete the Odyssey through a cinematic and kaleidoscopic and wonderfully sublime Stargate. Uh, He will arrive at the center of a colossal alien Obum and then be metamorphosed into the star child and I think that the whole film is filled with wonderfully sublime imagery but I also think that the film as a whole is deeply sublime because it really it gives us a moving image of what we've always been as instrumental intelligent beings, what we are uh, becoming through history and ultimately what we may yet become. Uh, Kubrick gives us an image of the star child as a super intelligent being um, and I think that, I think that even today with the acceleration of artificial intelligence and the possibility of what some philosophers and artificial intelligence scholars call the singularity, we see the possibility of, um, of a new age and uh, a new kind of being, a kind of being that we ourselves are creating, and I, I think that the whole film is spectacularly sublime, and, and so even if, uh, even if Homer's Odyssey doesn't quite rise to the level of the sublime, as Longinus argues, because, you know, the Odyssey is, uh, is powerfully brilliant, but mainly by amplification rather than elevation. I think what we get in Kubrick's 2001 is a very elevated, astonishing, surpassing, wonderfully sublime, moving image of what we are as human beings and, and what we may become in that's the future. Great. Yeah, that's really...
0: yeah. So, um, we were talking earlier on a slightly different topic. Yeah. you've been doing some interesting work in bioethics. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind just sharing with our, our listeners that, that one sort of experiment or I guess it's not an experiment at this point, um, with the silk. Mm. Fascinating. Oh yeah. Yeah. We were
3: talking yeah. earlier about, um, about Nexia biotechnologies, it's a corporation which basically synthesizes the genome of a goat and uh, and certain genetic signature or genetic properties of a spider to uh, create a kind of hybrid creature and they call it a goat spider or a spider goat. And These are basically goats that produce within their milk lots of spider silk. This can be harvested um, for any number of purposes because spider silk is far stronger than Kevlar. I think it might be like five times stronger than Kevlar or something like that. Um, I think that Nexia Biotechnologies calls this biosteel. And so already I think we're you know a few decades into animal-animal hybrid engineering for the purpose of you know creating things like biosteel. So
0: wow. you were talking about... Um, enhancements in, in your talk, yeah. right? This is yeah. like a whole right. sort of new facet of, of, of your research. Um, so what, what do you guys have coming up? Do you have um, any projects you'd like to promote, um, books coming out, articles?
3: Um, well, uh, yeah, I, um, I love 2001, and so I think, um, I've written several pieces on it already, but I have a new piece coming out uh, on 2001 as philosophy. Uh, it, the subtitle is A Technological Odyssey. Is this in the Palgrave collection? It is. Much? It okay, totally I've got one is. Yeah, out in yeah, the yeah, cool. Too. Cool. yeah, yeah. Cool. So yes. Yeah, so yeah, this, this, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Yeah, I'm doing yeah, one on, well, we're
0: all on right. Russian doll and, yes, and that's Handmaid's right.
3: Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Excellent. Yeah. yeah, so this is with David Kyle Johnson. Yeah, Great guy to work with. And in fact, I met I met Kyle last year at Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, and he asked me to do an introduction for, um, for his, uh, great courses, uh, video yeah. that he was selling yeah. here. And, and it's just an amazing, uh, amazing work that he has. And, uh, and I was very happy to do the introduction and, and we became friends and talked and he said, well, Hey, you know, why don't you produce or write a, write a piece maybe on Kubrick or something like that. And I was very happy to say yes. And so, yeah, it's, a. Uh, I think it's a great project that yeah, he's got. Yeah, yeah. I'm really, I'm happy that we're all in that yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, in fact, we Yeah, go ahead. Uh,
0: they said the same thing. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, please. Yeah, we've, we've had him on a couple of times. Yeah. On the... Oh, that's
1: not what I was going to say. I,
3: I, Well, I think that, I mean, I like to think that Greg and, uh, and Kyle and, and all of us are kind of doing something, something really important and something new. I think that we see that... Sci-fi is a really important voice of, you know, culture, uh, of philosophy, of science, uh, of, um, you know, the arts. It's just a really powerful medium, and and I think think it's really powerful in, like, Aristotle's sense. So, Aristotle, in the Poetics 9, says that poetry is is philosophical because it speaks the language of possibility. It gives us moving images, that's, that's cinema, forget that. It gives us wonderful images in poetry of what we could become, what we could be, would be, maybe what a certain kind of individual like Odysseus or Oedipus would say or would do once you set up his character. And I think that, I think that film does the same thing. It speaks the philosophical language of possibility It speaks in subjunctive conditionals. It speaks in possibility uh, as could be's, would be's, must be's, may be's, and sci-fi especially gives us images of the future of what, not necessarily what has to be or must be, but, but but possibilities. What could be? What would be if we were to continue on with technology? If we were to go into space? If we were to. Uh, you know, advance the kind of projects that we're advancing now well into the future. Yeah, Can,
2: um, I just want to speculate too. I just was on a panel this morning on the sacred science and science fiction and we had a lot of fun. It felt like we were just starting um, and then our time was up. But I, my guess is that a lot of folks here who are interested in science fiction and actually more than interested, take it very, very seriously, I suspect that we're all ontological pluralists and um, this is an area that I've been interested in for a while a couple philosophers that I like philosopher uh, by the name of Nancy Cartwright oh,
3: yeah. and
2: um, and John Dupre who does it more from mm-hmm. the uh, philosophy of biology they make um, to me a very convincing argument that reality is not all of one kind um, and there's this maybe myth in science maybe it's more of a, a philosopher's myth of what science is actually doing. But they both reject that idea that everything is unified and it's all reducible to the microphysical. And they they describe beautifully, convincingly, that that's just not what's going on in the sciences at all, that the psychology is not being reduced to biology, biology is not being reduced to chemistry, and chemistry is not being reduced to physics, and physics is not being reduced to the microphysical um, you know, I always assume
0: physics was just reduced to philosophy. Is that exactly, wrong? Exactly. Yeah, in <laughs> math, and then it's all over That's once good. you get
2: reduced to math, right? Because oh no, math wins. Yeah, then Plato okay. wins. Right? Yeah, yeah. What, what's happened here? Um, so it seems to me that because of the, there's this kind of openness to different possibilities, right? Logical possibilities, physical possibilities, this "what if" that that um, Gerald you were talking about. Um, I think that that kind of speaks to our reality as we know it. Even if we don't get into science fiction, we already live in a world where there are social realities. We don't deny that there are social realities, even if we're a, a physicist. Um, and if we're, even if we're doing game theory when it comes to political science or economics, we don't, in our day-to-day lives, we don't assume always that people are rational agents, right? Sometimes yeah. we assume they're kind of irrational so we we know the limits of that particular science. We know the limits of that particular framework. And we shouldn't think that that's a flaw of the science. It's more like that's our reality. Our reality just doesn't extend um, to one pervasive, unified, neat little picture. So I think Cartwright calls, in one of her books, she calls it a dappled world. And nice. I think that, um, yeah, it's a, basically she embraces the, the messiness of it. Um, and it's a reality that we sort of... We do live in, in that world where we don't assume that we have one kind of explanation. We would think it's bizarre if somebody gave us a quantum <laughs> explanation for why you missed um, you know, my ride to the airport or something like that. Yeah. Um, we would think that was really inappropriate. And to me, this, I mean, exploring science fiction is about exploring that to a, a, a very large degree. Like, what are the possible realities out there?
1: It makes it seem appropriate that the conference would be multi Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes, yeah. Why narrow ourselves? Right? There's just no need for it.
0: So. Well, wonderful. Right. Thank you both for for joining us.
2: Thank you. Yeah. this thank was, you.
0: Appreciate Great. having you. This thank is you. a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay, rates. That's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's Ithinktheirforifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore iFan, Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.